Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. So the other day we started contemplating a new term called cottage core. I, when I say we, I don't know. I, I think it's like me, me and Jonathan McPants. But uh, cottage core, of which Taylor Swift has recently been accused, is the kind of elevation of the kind of cozy, cottagey lifestyle. And that certainly seems to be present in the paintings of Thomas Kincaid, right? His landscapes are often about a world that doesn't really exist. A prettified world of cozy cottages and lovely sunsets without a lot underlying it. That would be anyway one of the criticisms. Today we are in fact resharing with you a show that we did about Bob Ross and Thomas Kincaid. We could argue that neither one of them was a great painter, but they reached into more lives than many a great painter. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Bob Ross, and for the next 13 weeks, I'll be your host as we experience the joy of painting. I think each of us, sometime during our life, has wanted to paint a picture. I think there's an artist hid in the bottom of every single one of us. And here we will try to show you how to bring that artist out, to put it on canvas, because you too can paint almighty pictures. You know, we have avoided painting for so long because I think all of our lives we've been told that you have to go to school half your life, maybe even have to be blessed by Michelangelo at birth to ever be able to paint a picture. And here we want to show you that that's not true, that you can paint a picture right along with us. So I have to say several things here. That's Bob Ross, by the way. And maybe that's the first thing I have to say, which is we're doing a show about Bob Ross and Thomas Kincaid. Ross in particular is... I think one of two things to you. Either he's an intrinsic, indispensable part of American popular culture, uh, or you never heard of him. And, and there are plenty of people in each category. Um, and then the last thing I have to say is this show, we're, we're clearing the decks of a lot of shows that have been sitting in the works for years. And this is one of them. This show was, I, I, it's, we've been talking about doing this show for years. The first original problem was that the producer, Jonathan McNichol, only wanted to do a show about Bob Ross and didn't want to do a show about Thomas Kincaid. And I didn't want to do a show if it didn't include Thomas Kincaid. It took us like, I don't know, a year and a half maybe to iron that out. <laughs> uh, and then it just took longer to do the show. Okay, so uh, that's enough of me palavering here. Uh, it's time to talk about Bob Ross. And then we'll talk about Thomas Kincaid because that is the truth that we have worked out. Um, Emily Ryan is joining us, a cinematographer at the New York Times. Uh, she shares a byline on this pretty amazing and wonderful. In fact, if you don't know who Bob Ross is, this is the best thing you could possibly watch. Uh, this July video, it's called Where Are All the Bob Ross paintings, we found them. So, uh, first of all, Emily Ryan, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I'm going to ask you a question that comes up on this video, and I may not be quoting him perfectly, but Walter Kowalski, who is part of an elderly couple who are kind of both students and then sort of Medici-like patrons of Bob Ross, he says something like, what is this Bob Ross thing? 
You know, he, he said, like, what is it? What, are, what? And I think it's a really great question. Um, I mean, there's some way in which Bob Ross is more than any single thing about him that we can identify. There's some other way that he's talking to the world. So I don't know if Walter Kowalski asked you that question. How would you answer it? It's actually a really interesting question. And just kind of referring back to how you set up this whole thing, you know, I was in the camp before making this video of um, I did not know who Bob Ross was before I set out to make this video with my colleagues. Um, And so that was a question I had, which is like, who is this Bob Ross guy? Like, there's plenty of instructional leaders out there. Why do the masses resonate with him so much? Um, And much of his fame, his like modern day fame came after he died, actually, which was in 1995. In 2014, um, Twitch, which is this um, like online like streaming platform, for lack of better words, um, piloted their creative channel with this marathon of Bob Ross back in 2014. And that basically introduced this figure um, to a totally different population of viewers. And this is typically a younger population of viewers. And so people, I think, have just resonated with his like, wholesome, kind-hearted, quirky isn't really caring um, what other people think about him, this kind of guy. And I think people just have really resonated with his spirit, even more so than his painting. Yes, he's sort of the anti-Simon Cowell, you know, in the sense that Simon Cowell exists to tell people that they're rubbish. And Bob Ross exists to tell people that they can make, I think he uses the word almighty in that that clip, that they can make almighty almighty art, even if they've gone through life being told that they have no talent. Um, Well, they're wrong, and you can do it. And so he's very empowering. And you mentioned Twitch, and one of the things that I thought about watching your video and preparing for this show is there's probably a pretty different experience or or, or a, a difference between sitting there all alone watching a Bob Ross show and watching a Bob Ross show with other people. And if the other people aren't in the room, if they could be, you know, with you in some kind of digital space where people are kind of commenting and sharing their observations, right? I mean, just the one-to-one interaction between Bob Ross is probably not as interesting as a community sharing its take on Bob Ross. Totally. And it's really interesting because he's like one of these figures who you can consume, for lack of a better word, in like totally different spaces. So Pete, there's a huge following on Twitch every day that still watches him. You're watching with thousands of other people kind of riffing on his jokes. Um, It's not such an isolating experience. But, you know, some people watch Bob Ross on airplanes. Like since this video has ran, I've been sent videos of people on flights just watching him paint on the back of their like on the back of their TV um, entertainment consoles. (laughs) And so you can have like totally different experiences of how you want to interact with this person, whether you're actually painting with him or you're just watching him paint or if you're doing it in this like um, you know, community online of people. So I think that's something that's super unique about him. So we should just say that one of the quests, uh, the Arthurian quests uh, on which you embarked, involved the fact that, I mean, there have to be a lot of Bob Ross paintings because we know that he did three paintings for every painting of every episode. Each episode consisted of him doing a particular painting, and he did a lot of episodes. I mean, they're just like, you know, by any reckoning, there have to be, what, thousands of Bob Ross paintings, and the number 30,000 has been put out there. But, you know, heretofore, the question of, well, where are they all? They're not hanging in museums and people don't seem to own them and there aren't a lot of opportunities to buy them, right? So one of the things you guys were wondering is, where the heck are all the Bob Rosses? 
Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, if you do the basic math, there's at least um, 1,143 paintings that were completed, completed. I mean, he guesstimated in like a 1991 Times article that he had completed 30,000, which like certainly seems like um, an exaggeration, but that number also floats around. Um, Bob Ross Inc. has um, on site over a thousand of those paintings. He was also known for um, giving them away on set. If someone on set was like, I really like that one. He was known for just giving it to them. He wasn't precious about his paintings at all. Um, He would also donate some of them for charity auction while he was alive. And, you know, there are a number of them that are floating around out there. You know, before Bob Ross became the Bob Ross that we know today, um, you know, we've gotten fan letters that people, you know, Bob painted them a painting at a state fair and they still have it and things like that. There's a lot of paintings out there that aren't accounted for, but the largest number of them in one location is certainly at Bob Ross Incorporated. And that's kind of how we went down the rabbit hole. (laughs) Right. And and explain where, where Bob Ross Incorporated was to be found. It's in Herndon, Virginia, which is outside of the Washington, D.C. area. And, um, yeah, and just a very normal-looking office building. <laughs> right. And, and so the people that you met there, I mean, they all sounded or seemed on camera as though they had taken some kind of drug that was made out of Bob Ross or something. They all seemed kind of calm and, you know, relatively happy about things. And one of the extraordinary things that the, the CEO kind of person said was, they had never thought about selling Bob Ross paintings. <laughs> that, it just, that thought had never actually crossed their mind. They have them. They're in boxes. They're not really climate controlled or anything like that. And they hadn't right. really thought about selling them. What do you make of that? You know, honestly, before we went down, I think, you know, we had, we had heard that, you know, over the phone by talking to them, that they hadn't thought about selling them. And we're like, okay, yeah, these things go for like fifty or $60,000 on eBay. You're sitting on thousands of them. This, like, does not make sense. But upon getting there and actually spending time with these people who are just such extraordinary, lovely people, we, you actually believe it. Um, it's a different kind of like company model in that this is the family that discovered Bob. They're not, you know, generations removed and aren't connected to his mission. You know, Bob's mission was to empower you and teach you how to paint. It, like that mission infiltrated every part of his show, every part of his teaching and his personality. And so this also spilled over into how they like manage his legacy, which is in part these thousands of these paintings. And so, um, yeah, I mean, they, they don't plan on selling them. Um, you know, a small number of them are now going to be in the Smithsonian. But the objective, Bob's objective while he was alive was not to make money off of selling his, paint, his finished products to you. It really was to teach you how to paint. And so that's, that has maintained um, the company mission and the company line. And so I, we believe it. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, yes. I mean, not only did he not do that in his lifetime, but he apparently took little or no money for doing the very popular television show. The money came from other stuff like art supplies and, I guess, toasters and socks and stuff, whatever, that they would sell, uh, you know, merchandise, basically, uh, with Bob Ross's face on it, which is uh, – but I have to ask you a question. I noticed that just yeah. now you called him Bob. Have you started to think of him as Bob – have I, have I started thinking about yeah, Bob? Right. You know, I spent so much time with Bob. I shot this piece and I also edited it. Right. So I had a lot of long days with Bob. Yeah. 
So I feel like at this point, I've started to think of him as just Bob, but certainly Bob Ross. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I like it that you called him Bob, because uh, I think that's what's happened. I mean, look, that's one of the things, I like, I'm not a Bob Ross person, but if I were a Bob Ross person, the whole part of this is you've got a friend, you know, he's there talking to you about how you're okay and then he's painting these paintings and he's got squirrels sitting on on his shoulder and and you just feel like you've got this you know friend who really is not a big pain in the ass the way a lot of your friends are right totally totally you know it's like he is um largely on the show what you see is what you get kind of guy um and i think that coupled with like this experience of being able to talk to the people who discovered him and people who who spent a lot of time with him before he died um, I feel like I have a pretty good grasp on the kind of person he was and it matches um, with the person he is on his show. And so I think that's a really special thing that's reserved for like a very small number of people, um, a number of personalities, you know, who have these successful shows, whether it's, you know, Mr. Rogers or Oprah or people who are just have inspired the masses. And, you know, for people who know them well, it's, you know, they're like that on and off the show. And I think that's a really, really special thing. Right. So we ha- there's a few things we have to run through. So um, one of them is the, his soft spokenness. So we are told that his soft spokenness w- was something that came after his time as a drill instructor in the military. Right. That he'd spent a certain number of years right. screaming at people like Louis Gossett Jr., an officer and a gentleman, and 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 then he went the opposite way. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Too much more than probably the, the mass public knows about that. But yes, he was um, in the Air Force. He served in Alaska. Um, and yeah, he was a drill sergeant. So, um, you know, this is the definitely the total opposite. I mean, from what we know from the Kowalskis, from Jonah and Annette, you know, on the sidelines in terms of managing his business, he wanted it done his way. He wasn't like a pushover in any way um, when the show turned off or even when the show was on. And so he definitely, I mean, I think carried some of those traits he learned in the military, you know, um, into how he managed his business. But um, it was all a good spirit and wasn't, you know, he wasn't a nasty person by any means, even though um, he definitely is a tough guy. <laughs> right. And so we shouldn't mention the hair. People, you know, the trademark hair, this is it's almost like a halo uh, of hair, uh, although not something that he necessarily had wanted to stay with for his entire life. Most people don't want to stick with one hairstyle. but. At a certain point, he had no choice, I assume. Right. So the hair is actually a really funny story. <laughs> so when the show started, Bob was, like, kind of broke. And so they were trying, him and Annette Kowalski, who were kind of piloting the show, were trying to save money in any way that they could. And so they kind of landed on, okay, well, if you get a perm, it means less haircuts, and that means less money spent on hair. So he got this perm, um, and... The funny thing about the perm is he got it, and then they ended up taking a um, photo that became the logo for the company um, while he had the perm. And that logo became this iconic image of Bob Ross. And so then by the time he wanted to get rid of his hair, the logo you know, was widespread, and so he was kind of stuck with the perm. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So I have to ask you a little bit more about this Kowalski family. I mean, they occupy such an unusual role, I believe. Uh, she started out as one of his students, and but then became sort of a patron. I don't know. Explain the Kowalskis a little bit, if that's possible. Totally. Yeah. So Annette Kowalski is the person who discovered Bob Ross. Um, and she um, had just lost her son in a car accident. And her husband, Walt, was trying to cheer her up. And so he signed her up for cl- painting classes with Bill, with Bill Alexander. 
um, who is a famous German painter, only to find out that Bill had just retired and that this guy named Bob Ross was kind of like taking over for him. So she was kind of disgruntled about it. She didn't want to take a class with someone she had never heard of, (laughs) but she went down to Florida anyways to take this class and immediately was just like dazzled by Bob Bob Ross. Um, And she wanted to bring him back with her and her husband, Walt, to D.C. to teach classes in the greater D.C. area. Um, And so that's kind of how it all started. And that eventually took off and evolved into this PBS um, show. And so that's and the Kowalskis are still involved. Um, They started Bob Ross, Inc. with Bob Ross and Bob Ross's wife, Jane. And so it's half owned by the Rosses and half by the Kowalskis. And then no one could have predicted that uh, Bob and his wife would both pass away um, earlier than expected, obviously. And so the Kowalskis are now the people that fully own Bob Ross, Inc. and manage his image and everything that comes along with it. Right. Um, and yeah, we should say that Bob Ross died very young in his early 50s, as did Thomas uh, Kincaid. In this case, Bob Ross died of, of lymphoma. Um, so is is Walter Kowalski a former CIA agent or something? He used to work for the CIA, so he wasn't an agent. <laughs> but what we do know is that much of what he worked on, according to him, would likely still be classified today. Yeah. So it's kind of as far as we know. Right. <laughs> but it was um, definitely one of the most fun facts that we found as we were reporting this story. Yeah, Uh, I I guess the place I want to end here, we're going to talk more about Bob Ross in the next segment uh, with a a couple of people who host a Bob Ross podcast. But, you know, there's something that comes across to me, and I'm sort of like you. I'm I'm learning about Bob Ross uh, as opposed to being imbued with him from the from the earliest days or anything like that. What comes across to me is a little bit of fragility of his own. You know, I mean, there's for some reason or other, he's not comfortable painting people. They rarely appear uh, in his uh, in his paintings. Uh, he's very comfortable with squirrels um, and has them as pets and much more loving pets than I tend to think that squirrels can be. Uh, and 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 is constantly painting these very comforting scenes of trees and mountains. And I don't know, did any of that come across to you? I mean, I started wondering what's driving him, you know? And I don't think he has, like, a lot of personal demons or anything, but there's a way in which he seems a little, little, there's a little bit of emotional fragility. But tell me I'm wrong about that, too. That's fine. I don't know. I, it's interesting. I haven't asked that before. Um, I don't know so much as I would... You know, he was something that the Kowalski said is that, you know, he was aware that people, you know, would make fun of him and that they were making fun of him, whether it was like his phraseology or his hair or the things he would paint. Like he was kind of in on the joke and he really didn't care. Um, And I think that if he did care, which is kind of what I would associate with the fragility part of this, I think his show would have changed Mm. a lot. Um, And it didn't. He really stuck to his guns. And I think that. Actually, I think he's someone who was so confident and comfortable with who he was and his own mission of like wanting to empower people to paint that he just didn't care. Mm. And I think that is like such a refreshing um, kind of person to have, you know, on television to have so many people look up to. 
But um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought about that. Before. Right. I think I, th- I think your analysis is very sound. Uh, and we should say, I mean, his truth goes marching on. Three point two million or so subscribers to his YouTube channel. Uh, the TV show is still somewhere on PBS at any given time. Uh, it's, you know, Bob Ross isn't going anywhere, I, I would say. Uh, well, listen, uh, first of all, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. I really do encourage people to to watch this video. It just is, it's terrific. And it is findable fairly easily on, on the New York Times website. Emily Ryan is a, a cinematographer at the New York Times. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. So we're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to come back. Uh, and yes, of course, there's a of course, <laughs> of course, there's a Bob Ross podcast. There has to be a Bob Ross podcast. You'll meet the podcasters when we come back. So maybe you're sitting here listening to this show and you're thinking, well, this is just like drinking from a fire hose. I can't absorb all this Bob Ross stuff all at once. What I need is some opportunity to methodically go through all of the Bob Ross episodes and think about them and maybe have some helpful commentary about them. Well, have I got a show for you. It's called Nothing But a Bob Thang. Uh, it is hosted by the podcasters Justin Croft and Nathan Badley. Uh, and uh, they are joining us right now. Justin's on Skype and Nathan's on the phone. Uh, welcome to our show, hosts of Nothing But a Bob Thang. Thank you oh for gosh, having us. Thank you. Okay, so maybe just begin, one of you uh, just begin by exp- explaining the premise uh, of Nothing But a Bob Thang. I just hinted at it, but uh, but Justin, take us through what it is you guys do. Yeah, so we we go through episode by episode starting at season one. Uh, one of our episodes is one of Bob's episodes. We watch him paint. We take copious notes. We also take extensive notes on what he's <laughs> – anything about – any little detail about Bob. So what – if he's changed his shirt, if his jeans are spangled, anything <laughs> in particular. And then we uh, we talk about it on the show and we give it a rating actually, um, which we're completely unqualified for, of course. All right. So, um, Nathan, I'm going to ask you what is both an obvious and possibly impossible to answer uh, question, which is why do you do this? What's driving you, well, Nathan? <laughs> um, so the show started just because we were looking for something kind of fun to do together. Um, we we were both aware of Bob Ross, had grown up watching some Bob Ross, and thought this might be kind of a fun 
thing to do. And at this point, it's it's kind of just a fascination with it. <laughs> yeah. um, going episode by episode, you can see little minute changes. Um, you can see the show go from, you know, like a smaller, lesser known underground show to um, the Bob that everyone knows studio quality improved. Everything got a little bit more interesting as you went along. So it's just interesting watching the process there. Not to mention, it's just fascinating watching a person, you know, make a full painting in 30 minutes. Yeah. So I, now I will be struck by a bolt of lightning when I say this. Uh, but Justin, I don't really find it all that fascinating to watch him uh, do a painting. And, uh, <laughs> and wow. no, it's going to get worse. And I'm sort of of the school of, yeah, you've seen one Bob Ross painting, you've seen them all. So, mm. so Justin, talk me out of my apostate position on this. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I don't think we're too far out of the boat um, with you there. You know, I think Nathan and I both like other kinds of painting probably more than than landscapes. But, you know, as two people who have no art background whatsoever, you, you just watching the techniques come forward. I mean, when he paints a mountain and then takes the palette knife and sort of puts the frost and the snow on in one stroke. I mean, that's just amazing to me. There's something like effortless about what he's doing. I mean, obviously he's, he's a master at what he's doing. Um, and there's just some, to me, there's something very Zen about it. You know, he doesn't think about it. He just sort of does it. It just comes out of him. Um, you know, watching him do water and things like that is also amazing. He, he pulls color out of the canvas that's already there and you sort of forgot it was there while you were watching. And then all of a sudden we have, you know, these really dramatic waves or something. And yeah, I think Nathan and I both like the more sort of impressionistic Bob Ross when, when that happens, when there is a hint of that going on. It, Nathan, it also does seem, I mean, look, if you're going to like Bob Ross, then you're basically committing yourself to trees and mountains. But you guys seem to be kind of hating on the trees a little bit. You kind of. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so Justin has a very love-hate relationship with the trees. Um, not, not to speak too much for him, but I know that further back trees in the, in the background are fine. It's when, and this happens very frequently, uh, Bob has created what seems to be a full painting and then bam, right in the middle, a giant tree shows <laughs> covering up an entire mountain or a lake. Um, and suddenly the tree is the focal point. He's right. very anti-tree and I'm, it, it concerns me a little bit. Well, don't let it divide <laughs> you. Um, I felt the same way, you know, when Phil Collins started fronting Genesis, I thought, no, I liked him back in the background on the drums. Uh, all right. So, um, let me just also ask you guys. So, Justin, well, first of all, you rate each one of these um, paintings. Yeah. What? How do you rate them? In other words, what? <laughs> first of all, it seems premised once again to me on the idea that they're really different from one another. But uh, let's get past that. What do you? What kind of um, uh, aesthetic do you bring to this whole question? Well, Nathan's the expert on the rubric, but I believe he found it through a, a, a super quick, you know, Google search. And it comes yeah. from a middle school art class. Is that right, Nathan? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There's this cool thing on the Internet called Google. And if you Google art rubric, tons of them come up. I chose one that definitely was for a middle school because we aren't qualified to be rating anything. <laughs> um, 
so we need as basic criteria as possible. So the rubric, it's five categories, four points available in each. It's very rare that he gets a one in a category because one is usually something along the lines of you forgot to actually make a painting. Right. Um, but we, we rate every painting on that scale and award bonus points as we see fit. Um, it happens occasionally. <laughs> right. So one thing that we need to talk about is that, uh, obviously, as our previous guest talked about, Bob Ross uh, posthumously has become famous in, in a different way, in a possibly bigger way uh, than he was in life. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is that there's also this phenomenon called uh, ASMR, which is uh, this notion of people having a particular set of physical reactions, often to very specific kinds of sounds. So right. let's play a little bit of Bob Ross, and we can uh, uh, we can just talk a little bit about what's going on there. And we'll go right up here, and let's just dance in a happy little sky today. Let's let's do a seascape that's very bright and shiny and pretty. And there we go, little cad yellow. I'm going to just vary the yellows here. Started with Indian yellow. Now we're into cad yellow. Shoot, now we'll go into a little bit of yellow ochre. And yellow ochre is sort of a gold color. It's very pretty. Very pretty color. I like that. There. And we just let it just come right on around. Maybe something like that. Wherever. Just make some decisions. Then we'll take a little of the bright red. And we have not cleaned the brush yet. I like these kind of paintings where I don't have to clean the brush much. I'm sort of a lazy painter. There. I personally did not have a scalp orgasm during that uh, <laughs> that that clip, but I guess there are you know guys. I, there are people who have that certain kind of uh, uh, of sensory reaction to just Bob talking and Bob scraping and stuff like that. Yeah, right, yeah. So, and, and unknown to oh. him, he was sort of a proto ASMR you know figure. I mean, a lot of people still go back to his shows and watch them just for that. Okay. Um, well, I guess I also I really need to know what when, when how much feedback do you get from the Bob Ross audience? People who really like Bob Ross, I'm sure they've found uh, your podcast. More of them may find it after this uh, particular appearance. And there's you know there's sort of an odd division uh, I think between enjoying Bob Ross in a very direct way and then enjoying Bob Ross with a trace of let's say affectionate irony. Um, and I guess well, I'm sort of wondering, you know, as you guys talk through your own reactions to Bob Ross, which are not untinctured with irony, um, what uh, what kind of reaction are you getting from the Bob Ross audience? We've we've gotten a good reaction from really both camps. Mm -hmm. um, the the people who are very into Bob Ross take everything Bob Ross did very seriously. I think enjoy that. You know, there's someone who is going through episode by episode and paying attention to someone that they view as one of the the great, great artists of the last century, I guess. Um, the people who enjoy it for irony's sake enjoy, you know, us pointing out things like when he when he might mention that there was a drifter that might have died, and that's why there's an empty cabin. <laughs> Things like that. From alcoholism. Um, yeah. yeah. It's always alcoholism. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's actually Thomas Kincaid who died in that cabin. But we're coming to that in the, in the next... <laughs> 
the next segment. But um, so so yeah, you know, so Justin. I'm trying to think how to phrase this. Let's say that you, if you'd been doing a weekly, you know, or a regular podcast on Nietzsche and just going through the works of Nietzsche, thing by thing by thing, you know, and really analyzing them and talking them out, you know, probably you'd become kind of Nietzschean at a certain point. There's a pretty good chance that just through exposure, you know, you'd become Nietzschean. Do you think you guys are a little bit more Rossian than you were way back before this whole thing started? (laughs) Um, Definitely. I mean, we recently... Uh, our last episode, we tried to do a painting ourselves. Again, <laughs> neither of us having any experience really whatsoever. Nathan slightly more than me, and it was humbling. I mean, you know, that's the thing. We're we are definitely riding the line because we do genuinely appreciate Bob, and at the same time, we do genuinely poke fun at him. Um, but yeah, I think I think the conversion. I'm probably the one who's more likely to sort of trip down the lane. With Bob and Nathan grounds me back down because Nathan is a it's curmudgeon by nature. Yeah. Right. Although you're the one who hates the trees, Justin. I, I don't I know. I do hate so. it. He hates a whole color. He hates an entire yeah. color. What, what, what's the color that you hate, Nathan? There, There is a shade of brown that Bob uses. Um, our least favorite painting the last season was called Brown Mountain. <laughs> Very unfortunate name for a painting. Um, right. And he, he painted the sky wonderful sky and some clouds in great and then just slapped this ups brown across the middle of the kansas mm-hmm. and right. i had i just have a very visceral reaction to this brown every single time right um i, I haven't the, seen i haven't seen the painting i've seen the emoji uh so yeah. no, i've seen the brown mountain <laughs> uh emoji i know that one all right i'm going to give you guys each a chance for one more thing which is one thing that you do every week is you bring in a fun fact uh about uh about bob so i'm going to have each one of you say your favorite fun fun fact uh justin you want to go first uh sure i mean let let me think for just a second you know his oh man nathan you go you go you go all right nathan okay. goes first. Thinking it's you yeah. So this is this is one of our favorite Bob facts. I know we've shared it on the podcast, but it always fascinates me a little bit. Uh, we know Bob was a huge animal lover, um, had Peapod the squirrel, always into animals. When Bob was a kid, uh, one of his school projects was to raise chickens and then kill them at an appropriate time. Mm. <laughs> um, he was raised in Florida. I don't that may explain why that was a school project i don't know um but being an animal lover he couldn't do it Mm -hmm. so he chose to have a bad grade and just kept the chickens let them grow up naturally and die of natural causes and then the rest of his life never ate anything with feathers on it Mm. nothing um we should say as long as you're mentioning the squirrel i believe I mean, I, there's no way that Christopher Guest can ever make a movie about this because it's like already there. But um, but there was another squirrel who was like epileptic or something and wasn't on the show as much. I, that also struck me as a favorite fact. Um, all right. So, OK, Justin, you're up now. Yeah, this isn't so much a fact as an observation. Something we've come to know is uh, Bob has a really weird sense of what kind of climates can coexist within a painting. So you might have like fall trees at the same time as you have, you know, clearly winter going on and spring grass growing up <laughs> in the front of the painting. And so, I mean, maybe it's that thing about him growing from Florida and then spending a lot of his life in Alaska. It's just he melds seasons somehow within himself. And 
you know, we joke a lot that these paintings it can only exist sort of in Bob's mind. These aren't really representations of the natural yeah. world. It's definitely his he interpretation. Lives, he lives in an alternate universe. Seasons <laughs> don't exist. They're all just swirled together. Or maybe we live in a Bob Ross simulation right now. We may not be as real as we think we are. Uh, all right. So uh, people on your favorite podcasting platform, seek out nothing but a Bob thing, and you'll be the better for it. Justin Croft and Nathan Badley are the host. We're going to take a break. Thanks to you guys. Uh, we're going to uh, come back with the long-awaited, much-promised, and lobbied for by me, Thomas Kincaid segment. Shoot, I think with that, we about have a finished painting. I think I'll sign this one. The old clock on the wall tells me it's about time to bring this show and this series to a close. I've really enjoyed being with you for the past 13 shows, and I hope to see you again very soon. If you get a chance, stop by Branson, Missouri, say hello to us. Until next time, I'd like to wish each and every one of you Happy painting, God bless, and we'll see you soon. Today we're going to do a little scene with credits. I'm going to start over here with the producer of this episode. He's a little squirrel named Jonathan. I'm going to paint some little pants right now on this happy little squirrel. And uh, I helped produce this episode too, so let's just paint me as a little tree. And I'll just leave a little space in this pond for Amanda Fish. How should we paint Bill Curry? I think Bill is going to be a bush and a cloud. This bush is Bill, and so is this cloud. Okay. Goodbye. All right. Thank you, Kion Wolf, uh, as Bob Ross. All right. So we are we are making what is in some ways a sharp turn and in some ways a natural progression uh, from Bob Ross to Thomas Kincaid, painter of light, and joining us to do this. As the person who lobbied for this, I was so thrilled to find out that there's a associate professor of art history at UConn uh, who is able to talk quite eloquently about this. Alexis Boylan uh, is also the editor of Thomas Kincaid, the artist in the mall. Welcome to our show. Hi, thrilled to be on. Thrilled to talk to Kincaid. So you would argue, I think, that Thomas Kincaid and Bob Ross are not, in some ways anyway, a natural pairing that, at least in temperament and aspiration, they're very, very different men. No, I think actually Thomas Kincaid is a very traditional 21st and 20th century artist in that he went to art school and um, then he sought to sell his paintings. Um, that was sort of his uh, his focus. And he also was very interested in having um, a philosophy of art, in articulating sort of an idea about art and politics and what art should mean to people and to whom um, that was, uh, let's say, not as soft and uh, friendly as perhaps Bob Ross's version of that. 
Right. So in terms of who the men are, you know, you look at Bob Ross, you look at his paintings, they're kind of all of a piece in a way. Uh, whereas you look at Thomas Kincaid, who also has these rather lush, luministic uh, canvases, these paintings with, you know, they, they sort of look, we're sitting, I'm sitting not too far from the graveyard where Frederick Church is buried. So they look a little bit of Hudson River school paintings, and they are lovely and comforting and inspirational. And, and he's like this really dark, unhappy guy, right? Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely. I think that if you look at Kincaid paintings, you can see uh, Hudson River School, you can see Impressionism, you can see German Romanticism, um, all with a little sprinkling of Disney and some Cotswold villages sort of on top. I mean, I think he he understood the visual culture and pulled from it equally, um, meaning sort of things that were popular and things that were more sort of traditional high art images. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's not surprising or necessarily unique that he was, you know, had a complicated life, had a complicated relationship with alcohol and drugs. I mean, I think none of that is necessarily unique to Kincaid. Um, uh, and, And in many ways, you know, I think he's a bellwether of all kinds of things. And I think that his particular kind of frustration with modernity um, uh, and his white manhood, I think, sort of came together in a particular way, in a particular world vision that um, we see a lot now. <laughs> well, okay, I want to get you to expand on that. I mean, I, I think we might be talking a little bit about toxic masculinity. I mean, one thing that I'm gathering about Kin- Kincaid is that most of the people who dealt with him felt bullied or... <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah. yeah, I mean, go ahead. You take it. Yeah, I mean, there's a famous story about about him um, uh, uh, having too much to drink at a fundraiser, you know, sort of like it wasn't a fundraiser, a fundraiser for himself, a sort of selling event, and him actually um, uh, uh, going to the bathroom on, I don't know why you can say on radio, um, on Winnie the Pooh, on a Winnie the Pooh sculpture in Disney World. Um and so, I mean, that's a, like this sort of like, you know, story that people love to tell about him. But I think that the flip side of that is this story about this person who was suffering from alcoholism and ultimately died because of these things. So I think, you know, I, I, I think he is not unusual in suffering from, you know, illnesses that, you know, millions of Americans suffer from. And, um, uh, uh, it's hard to really know um, uh, how much then of the good stories and the bad stories were have to be a little bit reflected through, you know, that, that disease. Um, uh, 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 he was a very savvy business person. And again, like you can read that as a positive or negative, but I think he could be um, not ruthless, but very sharp about his decisions. Um, uh, about where he wanted his art to go and what it want, where he wanted it to sort of be seen or not seen and that sort of thing. So, I mean, he definitely was not uh, shy or indifferent uh, to those kinds of issues. Right. By the way, Alexis, we don't stand on ceremony here. You could have said he peed on uh, on uh, Winnie the Pooh. Oh, uh, I, I just I, I, I want to be um, appropriately yeah. uh, deferential right. to uh, him and his memory and all that sort of thing. So. And he supposedly said this is was once for you, Walt. Uh, yeah, as he did it, so. I mean, again, I think I think it's hard. I, I will say, uh, you know, as as a historian, it's hard to pull out, um, uh, you know what people want from him and then what they don't want from him and then how these stories can be read. I mean, right. I, you know, that sort of thing. At least so, he, uh, right. At least he, he didn't, a, yeah. 
At least you didn't poo on, on Winnie the Pea. That would have been worse. Uh, all right. No, I think I think I think uh, the story's bad enough. Yeah, it's bad enough as it was. So you know, we have to talk a little bit about his audience. So one huge part of his audience were evangelical Christians who saw not only in how he painted, but even how he talked about how he painted some expression of what they were looking for, at least to put on the walls of their houses. Right. Well, I mean, I think there's, there's, he is, as I said, an incredibly savvy business person and also was an evangelical Christian in California at the exact moment when we're seeing the rise of megachurches in the 1980s. And he rides that expansion um, uh, financially and artistically and uh, begins his career really marketing specifically to Christian bookstores and Christian um, uh, audiences. Uh, and again, I think one of the things he was so smart about is that he often would put um, symbols and hidden initials and hidden sort of signs into his work that then he would sort of reveal to his evangelical audience so that, you know, somebody who wasn't evangelical would look and just see like a nice bridge and a sunset, but somebody who was on the inside of Thomas Kincaid and this sort of evangelical dialogue would know um, that uh, it really meant X, Y, or Z. So I think that he got, though, his initial sort of um, audience from uh, evangelical networks and then expanded beyond that. And I also think that you have to sort of take into account that he's selling, I mean, he's not selling paintings, he's selling prints. He actually uh, like Bob Ross, never he did not want to sell his paintings, although for very different reasons. He wanted to create a museum of all of his paintings. So everything that is that people own is actually a print, um, and they're quite they can be quite large. And again, that fit into a 1990s sort of McMansion phenomenon, so that you know you would have something big um, to fill up big wall space. Right, and and we should say that. Um yeah, that he had an idea, and he, I think, was keeping his actual paintings in a vault with the idea that, and he bet the New Yorker writer Susan Orlean a million dollars that there'd be a major museum exhibition of him before he died. He lost that bet. Um, he, she didn't get the million dollars, though. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, to the, and he began selling these limited edition prints, um, often out of per the title of your book, out of stores in malls, or we just, we were doing a, a recording over in Long Island, and we stumbled on a Thomas Kincaid store sitting right there in Port Jefferson, or wherever that was that the ferry goes to. Uh, and and my understanding of it, too, is one thing that he would do is he would sell the limited edition print, but he sometimes had artists, you know, like young assistant artists, who would put real paint onto the print, so it would feel or seem a little bit more like a painting. Right, absolutely. But I mean, that's sort of, uh, he was not, I mean, that wasn't a hidden thing. That was, and they weren't young artists so much as they were Thomas Kincaid trained highlighters. Um, so again, I mean, he marketed every single aspect um, of, of the work. So it wasn't that you were sort of getting somebody who just dabbed paint on it. It was sort of uh, sold as you had people who were trained under Thomas Kincaid. Now, whether or not that was actually true or if it just was sort of an extension was unclear. Um, but uh, uh, it was always sort of advertised as not his hand, but almost his hand. And certainly his idea of what should be highlighted. Um, 
Yeah, it seemed as though the things that he would do that maybe to somebody else, to somebody else with a different sort of set of expectations from art would be bothersome. He was very clear about the fact that he was doing them and they, they didn't hurt, they helped. For example, seam limited edition print in three sizes. You know, three different sizes. I mean, if you're if you think of yourself as an art collector, that might bother you, but that doesn't bother the Kincaid audience. So they're looking for something else, right? Do you have any thoughts about what they're looking for? I mean, I have to say, what he does is he essentially replicated the. I mean, you know, he created sizes so that people could decide a what they could afford, and he was very clear about wanting people to be able to afford things at different price points. Um, that's how he actually sort of explained why you could also buy a puzzle or a calendar because you could work your way up through sort of Kincaid items so that you could eventually own a giant, you know, paint. Uh, and they're, again, they're not paintings, a giant print, but he called them paintings. And in this way, the sort of slipperiness of language and this idea of sort of like starting with one kind of object and then slowly moving up to another. This is exactly the kind of language that Sotheby's uses when they try to, you know, bring in people who want to start art collecting. And they say, you start off with prints and watercolors, and then eventually you can move up to oil painting. I mean, he basically used the same kinds of selling techniques and then just positioned it to a different audience and a different price point and a different population. And a population, it has to be noted, that has been pretty iced out of what is often a really elitist dialogue about contemporary art. I mean, he had a ready-made audience that wanted to look at something that was beautiful, that wanted art that they could be sort of talked to about and explained. I mean, when you would go to these mall galleries, there would be what he called curators who would talk to you about the art, which I think just beautifully capitalizes on how estranged most people are from accessing, you know, art that is in museums or art that is available in other sort of contemporary venues. Yeah, it seems as though his rejection by the cognoscenti was sort of a, a point in his favor with the audience that he was courting. Uh, we're, we're kind of running out of time here. I wish I, I'll just quickly summarize a story that you shared with our producer, I think, which is that you had a student who grew up in a home full of Kincaid images. Uh, she was trying to paint in a very different way, in a more uh, way that would be recognizably contemporary. And her parents kept saying, your work is so interesting, very different. But have you ever thought of painting like Kincaid? His work is so good and you have so much talent. You could try to paint like him. Uh, right. Yeah, we got about 30 seconds left. Go ahead. No, it was heartbreaking, but I think it actually really nicely sort of epitomizes this way in which he spoke in a really divisive manner about sort of this art versus that art. And it really does sort of, it tore her up to not actually make her parents happy by producing the kind of work that, you know, that they wanted to see. So um, in some ways, it's sort of the opposite of Bob Ross. He, he created more furor over objects and art than he did resolve our minds about. <laughs> All right, Alexis Boylan, we have to stop there. You've been fabulous, Associate uh, Professor of Art History. Nice to talk to you. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, we should, should be talking about Tim Cade more, more, more. All right. <laughs> Thanks to everybody for listening today. Thanks to Jonathan McPants for doing this. And thanks to, as I say, all the people behind us 